<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to episode 214 with my guest, therapist Katie Morton. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out, join the forum, read blogs by me, guest blogs by people, take a survey, see how other people filled out surveys, or uh, support the show financially. Um, I'm in a weird place right now. I almost said that like Johnny Carson. I am uh, I'm in a weird place, Ed. Um, I'm about a week off of tapering off of Abilify. I shared that with you guys last week that it was just making me too. The first month of it was great because I was like back into playing music. And then I just kept getting more and more anxious. It's like it morphed into this, uh, this anxiety thing where I was having trouble like holding conversations with people and no pleasure in reading or watching movies. And then suddenly I wasn't even enjoying playing music anymore. And it just felt like, uh, just like I, like I wanted to be in bed, but I wasn't tired. And um, so I'm going off the Abilify now and the anxiety and the muscle weakness, um, which was another thing that was really annoying, are slowly fading away. But in the absence of it is this kind of, it's almost like a, like a kind of a, a trough has been left nothing dramatic nothing like uh, not feeling necessarily sad or numb but then i had this experience um last night which i think is completely unrelated to the to the going off the meds and it wasn't necessarily a bad situation it was just kind of um it completely caught me off guard um uh, Loren Sala, who is a former guest uh, on this show, uh, does a 
show called uh, Taboo Tales. It's also a podcast, which you should, uh, sh- should check out. But they do a live show called Taboo Tales where a half dozen um, artists, performers, musicians, um, even non-performers will get up and read an essay on something from their life that is taboo to talk about. And Loren asked me if I wanted to participate in it. And I had seen uh, one of their shows before and uh, loved it. And I was like, yeah, that sounds right up my alley. And um, actually, my alley is more of a cul-de-sac. But anyway, I digress. So I was thinking, well, what should I talk about? And I thought, well, my relationship with my mom is probably the most taboo thing uh, that I've experienced in my life. So I'm going to talk about surviving covert incest. All stuff I've talked about before. So I write the essay. Loren's like, great, we're ready to go. And um, and I did the show last night. And now, mind you, all of this is stuff that I've shared with people before. But I get up on stage to read this essay. And it's like, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 minutes long. And my knees start shaking. And my hands start shaking when I start talking about the things that my mom did to me. And and I started feeling tears well up in my throat. And half of my brain is delivering this essay and the other half is going, what the fuck is going on? And I got off stage and I didn't want to face anybody. I honestly wanted to run to my car and just curl up and cry. And but I couldn't because there were there were some people there that uh, you know I wanted to to talk to, but holding a conversation was so difficult. And thank God Laura House was one of the people who was who was on the show, and um, and uh, Simone, who was a former guest, uh, was in the audience. And I got a couple of hugs from from people, and I was like, I'm in this really fucked up place. I don't know why I'm feeling so intensely. This is stuff I've talked about before. And um, and I was suddenly feeling regret. I was feeling really exposed. I was feeling like a um, like an exhibitionist. And this guy was waiting to talk to me. And I won't say his first name in case he doesn't want to be identified. We'll, we'll call him Kevin. And he came up to me and he said, and mind you, I'm still choking back tears at this point. And, um, and he said, I just want to thank you because I'd never heard anybody else experience what I've experienced. And his abuser was his stepmother. And I suddenly realized that it wasn't a mistake that I did this thing, which I was, I was, you know, everybody was saying it was great, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I, deep in my heart, I felt gross. I felt like, why did you do that? And you feel, you're feeling like you want to cry right now. So why did you put yourself through that? The only reason you would put yourself through that is because you're a fucking show off and you're doing it for attention. So all those mean thoughts, which are going through my brain, suddenly when I meet Kevin, uh, are just like, they just went away. It was like, oh, the universe wanted you and this guy to connect tonight. And we sat and we talked for about 10 minutes. And as he started talking, I started crying. And I just said, can I get a hug? 
and uh, and I just hugged this guy, and you know, I. I just started crying on his shoulder and it felt so fucking good. This guy who I'd known for all of 30 seconds, but I felt like I I knew him a lot longer than that. And and so I was thinking why what was it about this night that made it different than other times that I've talked about it? Some of you thought I was going to start the Seder right there. What makes tonight different from... Um, and I realized whenever I've talked about the stuff that happened to me, it's always with people who I trust. And this was the first time that I didn't... Even when I when I spoke at Johns Hopkins, it was a group of uh, trauma survivors. So even though I didn't know them, I knew it, that was a safe place. But this was a show business venue, a safe place, but I think in my mind, there was the risk that I was going to be judged. There was the risk that I was going to gross somebody out. Um, And I suddenly realized that's probably like one one thousandth of what somebody experiences who has been sexually traumatized that has to testify in court and be cross-examined. And I suddenly felt like such tremendous respect and empathy for anybody who has ever had to get in front of, to, to, to talk about their abuse to somebody who may or may not be safe, and especially to be cross-examined. And I just want to send you some love. And 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 anybody who has ever chosen to not testify in court, I completely get it. I completely understand. I mean, here I was in, in front of a room full of people who were on my fucking side. I knew intellectually they're on my side, but my legs were shaking. My hands were shaking. I, if you have ever testified in in court or gone in and gone to a police station after being traumatized or gone to a parent who you weren't sure how they were going to react, you have you climbed Mount fucking Everest and my my hat is is off to you and I got to say I fucking love Laura House cuz she knew exactly what I needed when I came off stage. She could tell that I was I was in a super, super fucking vulnerable place and she knew exactly what I needed because I came off stage and she was sitting right next to me and I sat back down in my seat and she leans over and she just goes, gross. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell. By 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. The 
good Craigslist experiences if you are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so that is when I first felt love. Like I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just I surrender. I think I was 28, and that was the first time I ever experienced that, and it was amazing. I'm here with Katie Morton, who is a uh, therapist here mm-hmm. in Southern California, and you have a YouTube channel. Uh, and I watched uh, some of your your videos, and they're they're great. You take um, you take questions uh, mm-hmm. from people, and then you comment on specific topics. And I thought, well, let's get her in here and try recording maybe some some mini episodes um, on some different topics that that we haven't covered yet. Um, so where would be a good place to start? Is there any particular um, issue that is your wheelhouse? I specialize in eating disorder work. So okay. that's what actually when I first started my YouTube channel, I started it with the thought that most people don't talk about it, know about it. Parents are very worried about it. Um, and that's initially what I started my YouTube channel on was primarily eating disorders. And then it just kind of spread from there what's the common misconception that people have about eating disorders that it's about the food it's like vanity mm-hmm. based as opposed to the control exactly and the the coping skill that yeah. it is and so i mean is there an addiction that isn't about control i haven't found one yet yeah. <laughs> if, if you do let me know yeah <laughs> but it's always about that it's almost like we all have situations in our life everyone where things feel extremely out of control. And so the only thing we know we can always control is ourselves. I mean, I'll even admit, like, I will run. As a young child, I used to run if I things were going out of control at my house. Or I felt like, you know, school wasn't going the way I thought. Or this boyfriend broke up with me. I would run. Do you mean l- literally run literally. or emotionally run? Oh, okay. Literally. Yeah. And I don't run anymore because of the fact that I know it's mentally, it means something mentally for me. It means I should probably see my therapist again. Or, you know, like, it's, something's up because that's my my outlet, my coping skill, and it's a... Do you exercise outside of that? I do yoga now. Oh, and okay. And that's my, my main thing. I'll walk, okay. but I don't enjoy running. I don't know why. It's Did a, it dawn on you when you got uh, at the furthest point away from your house, you went, oh, this feels so good. I'm finally away from those motherfuckers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, relief. Sweet yeah. relief. Sweet relief. <laughs> you know, I always like to say uh, the reason I settled in Los Angeles is that's where I hit water. <laughs> exactly. I went as far away. <laughs> yeah. I'm the only one down in California, actually, too. My family's all in Washington. So so uh, talk about uh, eating disorders. You know, we're familiar with uh, anorexia, uh, bulimia, a combination of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, would you qualify compulsive over exercising in the eating disorder umbrella? Definitely. Which it, is available at Target. <laughs> exactly. The eating disorder umbrella, umbrella. <laughs> comes in three different colors. Um, go ahead. Um, yes, I definitely would. It's, de- it's usually a component of more of the restrictive type. So a- in anorexia, there are subtypes and there are the, the, what they call the purging type. Now, purging type could mean they actually make themselves throw up or they use laxatives or they exercise because it's a way of, I mean, the calculations people keep when they're doing this is, is something you can't even really imagine how many numbers they hold. And that would be a, all the minuses are what I explain to my clients. Like when you're subtracting, that's a purge. 
So however you're subtracting numbers from your oh. grand equation. I, I get the most honest emails and surveys filled out by people. You know, one of the things I've heard more than a few people share is the it's excitement at having a big ball movement before they go weigh themselves. Interesting. You do get great surveys. I enjoyed yeah. picking some out. Yeah. yeah. The honesty of people. It's when you allow people to be anonymous or or when they've reached a point in their life, and this is what I love, where they don't carry the shame of their issue. Yeah. Because maybe because they're into recovery and they yeah. have hope in it, re they realize I'm not my story. Exactly. Um, and they share honestly about it. It's it's so comforting, even though you're not happy that they've had to go through those things. It's it, it's like when you, when you see people greet someone that crosses the the finish line in a marathon. That's how I feel for somebody who gets into the work of recovery and the light begins to come on in their eye. Mm -hmm. It's just the greatest thing to witness. Yeah. It's it, somebody being re truly reborn. Yeah. It's why I love doing what I do, to be honest. Yeah. You can see I'm overcome. I always call it like a dark pit. We feel like we're in a dark pit sometimes. But when they can finally see the light, they don't have to be climbing out of it. But when they recognize that they can, yeah. it, it's... There's nothing think, like it. They think it's the silence of the lamb's pit. <laughs> exactly. Well, the only way out is to get that poodle down here. <laughs> and you see the fingernails embedded in the... God, that is so... That, that like, is so... <laughs> um, so talk some more about uh, about eating disorders. Um, I think the main thing, there's a change. We have a new DSM. DSM is Diagnostical Statistical Manual. It's what therapists use to diagnose people. They came out with a new version this last March, I want to say, or April, um, and they added binge eating disorder, which I think is something that people don't talk about. And most of either my clients or mo my followers, w like our concern most is because they overeat, and they're overweight, and they feel like they're not taken seriously. Or if I go in and tell someone, you know, I have an eating disorder, they look at me like I'm crazy. And it's something that I think we need to talk about more than Obviously, we've talked about anorexia, bulimia, and, you know, the combination or we call it EDNOS in the field. It's like not otherwise specified. It doesn't quite fit into one. EDNOS. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. Which actually is not in the DSM anymore, but it's still, it's just uh, yeah, A lot of things different. are have the tag of not otherwise specified. Exactly. Yeah. Like you don't quite fit into this one, so it'll put you in this sure. bucket. What I would but, imagine a ton of people fall into those gaps and that mm -hmm. exacerbates the feeling of being alone because you don't fit into a box. Exactly. Like it, uh, we, like you were saying before, thinking that you're not that story, that story is not who you are. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, part of your journey. People struggle with, I don't have, I don't fit into a characteristic or category. And so therefore I'm not worthy. I'm not sick enough. Things aren't bad enough. And that's why a lot of people put off getting help for a long time, but that doesn't mean they're any less sick. It's, it's the it, feelings, not yeah, the story. Exactly. It's the, I stress to people that it, like, uh, I'm, I'm a recovering alcoholic and I was what you call high bottom drunk because I didn't lose the stuff. I didn't go to jail, but the feelings I had were every bit the same as the person that lost the wife and the house and the job yeah. and was, you know, living on somebody's couch. Exactly. 
exactly mm-hmm. the same, hopeless, yeah. filled with self-hatred, um, thinking about suicide 50 times a day. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I hope to accomplish with this podcast is for people to realize the globe probably has about five of the same emotions coursing through our veins 90% of the day. Yeah. From the most successful billionaire to somebody off the street. And that's the important thing to realize. Um, Pay attention to those. Yeah, we all suffer from the human condition. You're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. So talk some more about the the eating disorder. Um, I mean, the binge eating is something that's newly recognized in the DSM. And that's been a relief for a lot of my clients and followers. And that just means uh, over consuming to soothe feelings, but um, not doing engaging in restriction of any type. Exactly. The way they I think the way they label it is eating more than a normal person would in one sitting. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, I've had clients who drive along a certain road to stop it five different you know fast food places we just had somebody as a guest who described exactly that five different fast food places that's funny i wonder if she's your client i I couldn't tell you (laughs) (laughs) go ahead but it's it's interesting because of the with all eating disorders but mostly i find the most palpable feeling that they express is shame when they're binge eaters because Eating disorders. I mean, when I say that to you, the first thing probably pops in your mind is a you know anorexic model, skinny or yeah, skinny high school girl who's exactly. very popular and yeah. You know. And we don't we don't recognize the other side of it, especially in a nation where a lot of people are overweight and obese, and you just think people are lazy and mm-hmm. you know. Which is part of what I when I used to run groups at an eating disorder clinic, we used to talk about what are those automatic thoughts we have. So you see someone and we judge, you know. What do you think? What does that mean? You know, we go like, okay, so you're fat. So what does that mean? Oh, it means I'm I'm lazy. I'm stupid. I'm, you know, and we have all these judgments and getting them out in the, actually talking about them, getting them out in the air instead of keeping them in our heads, it can be really powerful. And then working to change that perception and noticing your judgments. You know, my thoughts used to be that, that, oh, that person doesn't like to exercise or they have no, uh, no self will, mm-hmm. but since I faced my alcoholism, uh, you know, when I see somebody who's who's morbidly obese, I think to myself, I wonder what happened to them mm-hmm. as a kid. If it's a woman, I usually think, well, I'm also a man too now. Um, did something happen to them where now the suit is protective? Exactly. Um, or do they get high from feeling food? And I think mm-hmm. I feel so grateful that I didn't have to carry all my empties around yeah. on me after a night of binging. Exactly. And yet the, the person who compulsively overeats, and I know what it's like to swear to yourself that you're not going to abuse it tonight. And tomorrow you're going to. You're gonna get things straightened out, and but that's the 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 genius of uh, the addictive mind is it convinces yeah. you that let's use this coping mechanism one last time. Exactly. Yeah. And it it's true. Like uh, the protective suit. I love that you have that insight because a lot of people who struggle with it was because and it goes both ways. But some of my clients will say that they were abused, like sexually mm-hmm. abused as children, and they would say something like, "Oh, you know." like maybe pull on hip bones and say, oh, that's so pretty on you or something. And so then they think, well, if I don't look like that, if I hide that, then it won't happen again. Or the other way where, oh, your, you know, your curves, I love that. Then they lose weight to not look that way, to not be appealing. You know, it's interesting. Um, 
we had um we had a guest on uh Amber Tozier who uh she was staying at her dad's. Her parents were divorced, and her dad was a photographer. Actually, he might have still been living at home. I can't remember. But he was an amateur photographer, mm-hmm. and he had, in the room that she would stay in, um, yes, it was, they were living separately, because when she would go visit him, she would stay in the guest room, and his guest room was plastered with glamour shots that uh. made her super uncomfortable. And she realized, as we were talking, that that is when she started wearing very masculine baggy clothes. Interesting. Yeah. Like she wasn't comfortable with it. Yeah, the, the idea of, oh, my dad, that's how my dad views women and females. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's so interesting, and I love having those revelations when you're like, oh, that's where it came from. What is the, the difference between healthily appreciating the female form and it, in your opinion, mm-hmm. and it getting into an area that is unhealthy not only for you but for the people that you view that way? Do you mean as... Like a man objectifying, uh huh. Both because something that I've seen too is um, women also objectify men and objectify other women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder what because I I know for myself when I can appreciate somebody's beauty without objectifying them but often i do go to that place of it turns into a fantasy or Mm -hmm. whatever and i I just wonder what a therapist's opinion is if that can even be put into words and it is it is a a interesting question It's, it's a little tricky i guess i i think in general noticing someone appreciating that you find them attractive is a very normal response that's not something that anyone out there should feel guilty about or dirty about um but i think letting things linger potentially um noticing all women regardless and fantasizing about all and never thinking about what their personality is and what the person is like as a as a as a whole yeah i think in whole i mean h-o-l-e i'm kidding (laughs) (laughs) but um i think as long as you that's not the only way you can view yeah. women or men in general, whatever you're attracted to. I think if that's the only way you can view them, that's when I would think it would be a problem. But if you're able to say, I mean, even, you know, everybody, I can look at a woman or a man and be like, that's a pretty woman or that's a really attractive man. Which and, is healthy. And that's a normal thing, right? But if I was to only, if I was only able to interact with people, not actually just through that, I think that would be where I would be concerned. Uh one of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize is one coping mechanism that, that people have is to kind of assign magical qualities to somebody else, to lose themselves in fantasy about that other person, which is a form of objectifying because it may not be sexual, but but what you wind up doing is is not viewing that person as a real person. Um, thinking, oh, they're going to rescue me or mm-hmm. I'm going to rescue them without it being based in any fact on knowing that person. And a lot of people, um, I think people particularly that get into relationships and then out of them after three, six months don't realize that they're 
doing that. They don't realize that they build this person up to be something that they're not. And then, and that's the reason why maybe that first phase is exciting is because those bubbles haven't been popped yet. Yeah, they're not, not to say they're not a real person, but we all have our icky bits and no one's perfect. But it's easy when you don't really know someone to say, well, everything about them is wonderful and perfect and they do everything great and they, they never fart and, and they never speak out of turn and they never fight with me. And they're never crabby. Nope. Everything's just, you know, I don't know, rainbows and butterflies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I had the, the, the thought this this morning that, you know, true intimacy isn't about excitement, though there's certainly a component of moment, moments of, of excitement to intimacy, but true intimacy for me means enduring the shitty moments, mm-hmm. not lashing out, expressing how you feel, and accepting that other person's flaws. I think that I think that might be the most important and the most difficult part of intimacy. I know it's the part that I struggle with the most is. Um, because I extra, if I find something annoying, I extrapolate it out to this is going to be this way mm-hmm. for the rest of my life, and it's only going to get worse. It's interesting. You like catastrophize it right away. I catastrophize it, and yeah. uh, one of the things that I learned was to look at my part in it. And my wife can be a very fearful person, and I looked. She has a half dozen fears that are quote unquote irrational. One of them is jury duty and especially <laughs> going downtown and being getting lost in downtown LA trying to find the courthouse. With all those one way streets, I can yes. completely understand. <laughs> and it used to make me angry. Mm-hmm. And I used to try to, I thought the solution was to make her see how illogical it was, which is crazy to to try to do that cuz yeah. fears aren't about logic. No. They're it, about whatever. Yeah. They the they fear. just are. Mm-hmm. They just are. <laughs> and so I decided because compassion from other people without judgment had been so life affirming and life changing for me. I thought when it came around this next time I went, "Oh my god, what I should have been doing." is holding her and comforting her mm-hmm. and saying, I understand. And so this last time I went with her uh-huh. down to her first day of jury duty and, and walked her to make sure she got there safe. And she cried because it would, it, and I realized that's intimacy. That's what she needed. 27 fucking years <laughs> into our relationship. And I finally yeah, discovered it. But what you're describing, it makes me laugh. I was just watching a modern family, which I love that show. And there was a scenario where Phil, which is the you know the man yeah. with um, Claire, his wife, same kind of situation. Not a fear, but she didn't want him to fix it or explain how irrational she was being. She just wanted him to be there and to comfort her. And it's a common issue between men and women. And a lot of times people assume that what we need is you know help or fixing when really... Sometimes all you want is a hug or a it's okay or yeah, that really sucks. This is shitty. I hate I this. I feel you. Exactly. And recognizing that it's it's hard because we see things in one way, right? And we have to sometimes put the other people's glasses on and say, oh, if I would only known that, that would have saved so many arguments or, you know, so many worries. So, but it's really powerful, you know. And, and when I, 
when you see like somebody who's real did you get choked up there for a second no okay i'll let you know i am a crier though okay so don't um like when you see somebody who is really attracted to this super the super alpha alpha male Uh um yeah that guy may have that soft side to him but understand that you may be sacrificing it it's it's hard to to find somebody that has all of those qualities and when yeah when you're getting into that relationship um with them before you put all those magical qualities on them mm-hmm. you know maybe test the water share something and find out how that person reacts because that's going to be a clue as to how intimacy is going to go yeah and that's i mean something that i talk with some of my more teenage age clients is taking it slow in relationships so you can feel out the other person before jumping right in and then feeling hurt when things don't turn out quite the way that you'd anticipated because we had this dream right we had this thing that we've fabricated about what we thought about them and reality can be very different and you know it's it's interesting relationships are so interesting all the shit comes out totally all the shit it's halloween it is all the time (laughs) and it's just it's it's funny because it not only teaches you about yourself, as as you learn about other people, you learn more about yourself. You know, you absolutely like, do if oh, you're if you're seeking exactly. And the people that aren't seeking, you know, somebody asked me uh, in an email, "Is anybody beyond help?" And I said, "I don't believe there are many people that are beyond help. No. I think the people that are the most beyond help are the people that don't think they have problems." Exactly. I think recognizing you have a problem is ninety percent of it, totally. and then willingness to to work on it. Yeah, because I mean, I can't. If I got a dollar for every time I said this, I always say, when, when I'm in session, you're here. That's the hardest fucking thing you've ever done. It's huge. And that means that you're stronger than all the other people who can't get in here. And that's the heart. I mean, they're the bravest, yes. the most courageous. And people, that's part of my like unshaming of getting help mm-hmm. because people feel like it means they have, they're broken and they have problems. We all have problems. Admitting them and working on them, that's the hard stuff. Yeah. It's easy to stick your head in the sand. I would say, it, you know, would you say that a general was weak for calling in reinforcements? You'd say, no, that's mm-hmm. a smart general. Exactly. He's protecting. How smart is a soldier that stands there and says, I'm going to take on 30 people by myself because that's that's what strength is. Exactly. And I have no idea what their plan is for this, but I think that I can I can see it. Otherwise, I'm a wuss. (laughs) Sean, would you do me a favor? Would you crack that door open? Katie's uh, husband, Sean, is uh, is here with us. Perfect. It's getting a little, little grit, bit. grit and toasty. Yeah, uh, we we record on the weekends, and I think they they don't keep the air. Uh, they don't in my building like, either, like they, like they normally do. But it's quiet. It is. It's really quiet. It's nice. Um, I got off track as I normally do. Mm-hmm. Um, eating disorders. Yes. Um, I mean, what else would you like to know about them? I feel like I could How, touch on any topic. Some talk to the person out there that thinks. And, we, and we've touched on male eating disorders mm-hmm. um, because a lot of guys, you know, there's a myth that men don't have it, but there's yeah. g- gazillion guys have, yes. have eating disorders. A lot. And I mean, I've had some gentlemen that come into my practice saying like, well, I'm not gay though. <laughs> like, that's fantastic like, that, like eating disorders all of a sudden means you're homosexual. <laughs> oh, there's my no, God. no correlation, but. People have, you know, they worry about stigma. That That's part of my whole reason for doing videos and stuff is because people attach stigma to things. People hear things in media and we take it as fact and it's just not. And um, 
I mean, as far as treatment for eating disorders and people worried about getting help, because I think that's always the hardest for people to actually come in and talk about it and be honest about it. Um, don't be scared. You're not alone. And don't hide it from your therapist. No. Oh if you're finally God. actually getting help, it, it's almost like I always tell people, I'm like, if you want to waste your money, that's up to you. It's but like going to the grocery store and going, I can't buy anything. Exactly. People are going to think I'm a glutton. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It, it's if you're there and trust me, we've heard everything. I know you've had other people on that are therapists and they say the same thing. We hear it all. And you're not going to shock us. We're not going to be grossed out. That's why you got into it. Exactly. And being able to speak your truth and have your truth heard and have them hold it and be like, that's okay. We can work on this. This is something, you know, can be so powerful in and of itself. That can be he the most healing thing for a lot of people. Um, and if there are overeaters out there who are thinking, you know, I'm not worth it. I'm not sick enough. I, I need to be underweight to get help. You're, you're just bullshitting yourself. That's not it's the truth. The, it's about the feelings. Yeah. So where would where would be a, a a good first place for them to to reach out? Um, it depends on where they're located at. But I always encourage people to contact their insurances and find out who's on their panel. If money's something, you know, we're all on a budget. Um, and there's also theris, therapistfinder.org is a good place, and people can t say on there what they specialize in. Um, so that can help you. Um, but so therapy is where where you would I would start suggest first. yeah and they can individual also, and they can also a uh, Google low fee therapy mm -hmm. exactly in the name of their town or city yeah or dial two one one and find out what services are available in your in your local area yeah and there's a lot more in cities I know for low fee uh, there's a lot of clinics I worked at one yeah. when I was first getting my hours where I think my patients paid twenty dollars an hour which one did you work so, at i worked in north hollywood at the center for individual and family counseling oh, okay i so, went to one the san fernando uh family counseling center some of my uh people that went to, i went to school with worked there as well yeah it so. was she was fantastic she moved out of state eventually but yeah. she was one of the best therapists i ever had yeah I was in the process of getting her license because it's it's about the, the em empathy. It's not about how brilliant they are. That's certainly nice to have somebody that's intelligent, but it's really yeah. about being being felt and guided. And that's what I always tell people when they talk about seeking therapy, and they're like, "Well, how do I know if it's a good person, or you know, how do I how do I check them out to make sure?" And I'm like, "You don't have to check them out. Go with your gut when you go there and you sit with them. Do you feel comfortable? Do you like them?" You feel empathized with? Exactly. Do you feel actually heard, like listened to, like they're actually present? If you click with them, stick with them. Mm -hmm. that, and you if know. you feel like they're cold and judging, get the fuck out of exactly. there. Exactly. Then why get the hell the are they a therapist? Because there. <laughs> there are those therapists out totally. there. There are therapists out there that are cut off from their emotions. They mm -hmm. want to intellectualize everything. Yep. And you are missing half of the ther therapy experience if you have one of those. I, I agree. And a joke that, and not even a joke, just something that we've made notice of some of the psychiatrists and other therapists I work with, we always say there's two types of people in the mental health field. There's people who got into it to fix themselves, and there's people who got into it to actually help others. Mm -hmm. And those, like, it can be so... Can you have somebody who's both? Potentially. And I, I guess definitely, as long as they're working on their shit, too. Like, yeah. if I wasn't in my own therapy, and I hadn't been in therapy since I was off and on since I think I was like 14, 15, um, then if I can't help myself, how can I help you? And if I don't believe yeah. in what I do... Why did you get into it? it? I got into it, honestly, I've known forever. That's the weirdest thing. People always ask, like, when did you know? 
in, in high school, I even knew in middle school, because I was always the one that people would confide in, and come talk to. And I enjoyed being a confident, like, yeah. oh, I, I'll, you know, I kept good secrets. I'd never tell anybody. I enjoyed being. It's like the ultimate privilege and, and compliment to somebody is that I trust my inner stuff yeah. with you. Yeah. And I, I just enjoyed it, I guess. I enjoy listening. I enjoy people. You know, yeah. I, I always believe in the good in people. Like when you're out in the world, I'm like, you know, people care about people yeah. in general if you just give them the chance. Did you come from a, a stable, nurturing, emotionally literate um, environment? Or did you come from a little something that kind of, um, I know therapists have to, a lot of therapists want to be aware of that line because yeah. they have clients. Yeah. Um, are you comfortable uh, answering that or would you prefer not to? Um, I mean, I can answer to some extent. Sure. There's obviously stuff that I wouldn't want people to know just because yeah. it's my own and, stuff. And I'm not asking for that. I just kind of want to know, did you come from a stable environment, slightly dysfunctional, super chaotic? Um, mostly stable. It As I got older, things unfolded that were a little more chaotic. I wouldn't say it was ever terrible, but my my before my dad passed away, my dad passed away about... Oh, six years ago, right after I met Sean. Um, and around that time, my mom was looking to divorce him and that felt very chaotic to me. And that was kind of an icky time. But as far as communication goes, um, my mom was very communicative and my family as a whole is very communicative. But it also, as a family, I found that we had some rigid boundaries where we kept secrets within the family. And it, I remember when I first started therapy and I started talking about things that went on in my family and not even these big giant, there was no abuse or anything like that, but just things that sure. happened that were not okay to talk about finally airing it like, yeah, and that was horrible. And I was so overwhelmed and, you know, it was stressful with my mom and doing, the, you know, I felt so much relief because there's something about holding secrets that give it more power over us. Yeah. And yep. the sooner you talk about it, then you feel like relief from it. Absolutely. So, and yeah. you give you give somebody else the chance to be of service to you by exactly. by opening up. Um, where should we Where should we go next? Um, the two topics we had before were um, the what it's like getting into treatment, which I guess we've kind of talked about already, and then um, oh, how to support people who have someone mm -hmm. in their family. Was that the next thing? Is that, or is there somewhere yeah. else you'd like to take it? Yeah, no, let's do that. Um, any issue or just um, eating disorder? We can do anything, okay. really. I mean, I deal okay. with everything. That's just okay. where my okay. um, specialization, I guess, lies. Uh, one of the things that Katie and I talked about um, covering before we recorded is because I feel like it maybe hasn't been touched on enough in the podcast is the loved ones or the friends of somebody who's struggling with a mental illness or addiction or trauma, um, how they can how they can help uh, go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's something that people struggle with a lot. And the number one thing I tell to family members, because a lot of times when I'm working with younger people, like a lot of my clients are teens or young adults, I also see a member of their family or their whole family. Um, and the number one thing I always say is seek to understand their experience as with as much patience as you can, because the thing that's the hardest for both sides is the unknown. 
my clients worry about telling their parents that they're depressed and they've attempted suicide or they've thought about it or any number of things. They're afraid of telling because they're afraid they're going to freak out. They're going to put them in the hospital. They're going to scream at them. They're going to ground them. They're going to whatever. Take away their money if they're older and they're supporting them. Or break down and cry and become inconsolable. Exactly. And make it about them. Yes, which is kind of, yeah, if you have a more, yes, difficult emotional experience with a parent. I, I see have that a, a lot. A I have lot a mother pe- in mind <laughs> about that that's... I read so many surveys of people that um, girls that were raped and don't want their mother or father to know mm-hmm. because they're afraid of of how it's going to hurt them. Yeah. And I was like, there. any parent would want, any good parent mm-hmm. would want to do whatever they can to help you, no matter how painful it is to them to know. Exactly, because, and it's not only healing for the person to talk about it, like we were just talking about, like airing it feels so much better. It's not only important for them to be able to tell it to them, but it's important for parents to try their best to hold it to to be there i always tell parents the things that i would hope for you to try and ask is like what happened how can i help and what else do you need from me that's it those kinds of questions that's all i want to know like what happened and how can we move forward because when parents make it about themselves it's oftentimes because they're scared it could be because they're potentially emotionally abusive in other ways um, they or they haven't processed what happened to them exactly, and it brings a lot of their own shit up that and they haven't like, dealt well, with. I didn't deal with it. I sucked it up. Yeah, I didn't you, confront anybody. Exactly, you sweep it under the rug too, you know, because that works so well for me. You know, yeah. it, it's, but that's that's the b- best advice is like just seeking to understand their experience, whatever it is. If if your child's struggling with depression and they're locking themselves in the room and they're not coming out and they you know aren't sleeping well and just seek to find out what's going on and ask how you can help and don't be afraid to get them in therapy parents are always like well, what if, you know on my site when they comment they're like, they always say well what if someone so finds out that my child that makes me a bad parent no that makes you a great parent yeah so the the stigma about that kind of stuff you know it, it's bullshit that's not the truth if if they're not getting help, then they could be getting worse. And where would that leave us? You know, we are an emotionally illiterate country. Yeah, we really are. It's changing. It's getting better. Yeah, it is. But we are in the dark ages. It is. It is. Uh, I pray that fifty years from now, people look back and go, "You were cave people." I know it's true. The amount that we stifle and sweep under the rug or pretend didn't happen is horrible and then the weight of what we carry around all the time i mean i'm surprised we've lasted as long as we have i really am too i really am too um because the ripples are so far reaching from untreated mental illness and addiction and trauma it's uh, there's nothing that costs an economy as much no. that destroys families apart as much that starts wars as much yeah that leads to awful marriages and yeah. awful divorces as much it, yeah nothing and, and even thinking i mean i had a client once i remember telling me she was she came from an abusive home and she was in an abusive relationship and they never dealt with anything they never talked about it this was her first i think she'd been with me for three months or so and i remember asking her um you know that that boyfriend that relationship how is it going you know kind of just trying to see how she gauged it or whatever and she's like well this is what it's supposed to be that's how 
this you know like this is as good as it can get i'm like oh no honey there there is so much more but because we don't talk about it we don't deal with it and our norms become these unhealthy situations it's yeah talking about it's powerful so you know don't be afraid to go into therapy or get your child into therapy or get into family therapy would it be fair to to say um to take time out to hold that person mm-hmm. and remind them look in their eyes and remind them that you love them and you're going to be there for them yeah i mean something that i think we're missing as a society is that like one on one time no electronics we're not checking things we're not you know on our computers with something we're actually present we're listening to one another I mean, Sean and I were just out to dinner last night and there was a couple sitting next to us at the bar and they were both on their phones the entire time. And I thought, that's not connection. Like I, as you, we do things that are on social media and they're out where people can listen and watch, but there's nothing like being present with someone, having a hug, being held, being understood. If you cry to feel comforted, it's, it's there's nothing like it. What are, what are some other things that, that somebody can do? Um, actually, I have, I have another question around that topic. Mm-hmm. The friend who's draining. Mm-hmm. The emotional vampire. Talk about that and how to handle that and how to recognize. That. I actually um, talked about it on my uh, channel back, one of my earliest videos. I called it Toxic Friends because mm-hmm. we've all had them or have them. And we, we you know, it's like, ugh. Um, boundaries are really important. Uh, it's something that is really hard for people to set up, especially people who find themselves in relationships like that. They tend to be more easygoing people. So it's hard for them to tell someone like, I've got to go or something like that. Or, oh, I have an hour today. And that's the best way to protect yourself from feeling wiped. We all have those people in our lives. Um, It could be a family member that we can't cut out, or it could be a friend that we may be able to cut out. If you're able to, if you find someone draining, you sit down, all they talk about is themselves. You never, it's not a two-way relationship. Because I always tell people we should seek two-way relationships where we're both gleaning something from one another. So it's healthy. It's balanced. Yeah. If we find ourselves in a one-way street where we're wiped, we dread their calls. We find uh, it comes up on our phone and we're like, oh, we just want to let it go to voicemail um, to limit the time or make it in a group setting. If there are any ways you can do that, I would encourage you to set it up that way because you're giving yourself not only little bumpers of other people that they can suck little bits of energy off of and not all you. Um, and then the, the strict limitations as much as you can. It, it's going to feel really bad at first because but you're not being a, a bad friend at all. No, you're, you can't carry that person's pain. You can't fix them. No. And you're not being selfish. You're not being rude. A lot of people think, well, I'm just, I'd be so, I'd be such a bitch if I said that or whatever. And I always say it's, it's not you. It's you're protecting yourself. We have to take care of ourselves too. So it's, it's being fair. It's okay. You can't spend all day with that person because then you can't do anything later. And so I mean, I just limit it as much as you can. And if, if it's a newer friend or a friend of a friend, I would just stop stop contact if you can. Um, talk to the person who is afraid that they're going to be that person if they go to somebody with their problems. Would it just be make sure it's a two-way street? Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's the start of it. If you, we all know when we're going through shitty times, when we meet up with people, a lot of times we need to vent to them. 
And that's okay. I think if you recognize you're doing that every time, that would be something that you might have to say to yourself, you know, I need to remember to ask them how their day was. I need to remember to ask and them. And truly listen. Exactly. And giving time to that, to be aware. A lot of it's just the awareness, like recognizing, because nobody's perfect. We all do things that maybe aren't the, the ideal way to do it, but we're managing the best we can. And we have times when we dominate conversations or exactly. we don't listen as well as we should. So yeah. Yeah, cut yourself some slack. Yeah, but, nobody's perfect. Yeah. And would it be fair to say to listen to your gut? Yeah. If, if you feel like you're dominating it and it's all you and you find yourself, this is the easy way. If you go out to dinner or to eat, to do something to eat and you can't eat, because you're talking so much and they've finished theirs way before you, that's a cue that you're doing all the talking. So that's something that you can just easily note. Or you're the slowest eater in the world. That's also possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, any other tips for how to support friends or family members? Um, what about the person who is depressed that doesn't want to help themselves? Mm-hmm. Let's let's ha take two instances. Okay. One is the spouse that doesn't want to help themselves. What do you do as their spouse if they don't want help? And that can be really hard uh, because we know if people don't want to help themselves, they won't get better. And I'd honestly encourage those people to get help themselves. Because something that's missing in that equation is when we need support ourselves for man like just managing the fact that they are depressed or they're struggling. Because we know when you're married to someone, when you're in a serious relationship, even if you live with someone, that can become like an emotional vampire. It can be very draining and difficult, especially if they're not willing to admit they have a problem and they're not willing to seek help for it. It could be really difficult to continue with that. So I would encourage them to get the support for themselves. And in that, you'd want to work with your therapist on how to better care for yourself and manage your relationship in the best feasible manner. You might have to change your expectations or your beliefs of what it could be. Or, you know, maybe it's it's not the good relationship for you. That's the decision they'd have to make, you know. Your therapist can help you walk through that because it's very complicated and you're going to be feeling a tremendous amount of guilt. Exactly. And self-doubt mm -hmm. and trying to trying to tackle that on your own is fucking crazy yeah. and sometimes the most loving thing you can do for that other person is to see that you are carrying on without them or you're willing to walk away from this relationship because your basic needs aren't being met yeah maybe they will say well i'll give it a shot exactly i mean sometimes just getting them into therapy is like just to start even if they're like i'm only coming once i don't know what i think about this blah 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 just I mean, being honest with yourself and figuring out what's best for you and the relationship as a whole can really maybe move it in the right direction. So it's, it's fair to say that it's better to, instead of trying to push them, mm -hmm. push that rock up a hill, mm -hmm. um, more so go take care of yourself and say, here are my boundaries. Here are things, the boilerplate basic things that I expect out of a relationship. Mm -hmm. And if these aren't going to be met, this is this is going to threaten our relationship and then leave it up to them 
to decide yeah. and say, I'd be willing to help you find a therapist if you want, as opposed to saying, you're coming with me, we're going to therapy, you're going to go twice a week. I mean, exactly. that's, that sounds to me like that would just be adding gasoline on the fire because then you're mm-hmm. trying to change that person. Exactly. You're, you're right on point. I mean, you're only responsible for your side of the street. That's what I always tell people. You can't, we can't make other people do things. We can't change how other people are. We're only responsible for ourselves. And for some people who are fixers and want to do everything to help other people, honestly, some of the warmest, kindest, most caring people struggle with letting other people not necessarily go, but letting them follow their path because we can't control them. We can do our best to let them know where we are and be honest about it. Um, And even that's hard. I say to people sometimes, sometimes that person might need to crash and burn yeah. to change, to, to experience the life that is meant for them. And sometimes that person may die, but that is not, that is not on you. No. That is not your responsibility. Um, you know, I had a, a, a guy that I was um, guiding in one of my support groups who died and uh, he OD'd and, mm-hmm. you know, I had kept trying to guide him because he had come to me mm-hmm. you know saying will you help me with these things and so i kept suggesting hey i think you should check out this other support group over yeah. here because i think you've got you know some love addiction going on um he, his ex-wife um he would say to me one day she's the most evil person i've ever met and then the next day he would say we're getting back together <laughs> and and he wasn't dealing with, you know, he was he he wasn't using drugs. But I said, dude, it is just a matter of time mm-hmm. until this pain from this relationship is going to get so bad that you are going to start popping oxycontin again. And he did, and he left kids behind. Yeah, and you never know what. But I didn't some... feel guilty about. It. I was yeah. sad that he died, but I didn't I didn't blame myself because I I couldn't I couldn't push yeah. him and it wasn't my job to push him my god my job was just to tell him uh the truth yeah to be supportive to be yeah. there if as much as you can it, you, but we're not responsible for their actions and other people's rock bottoms may look very different from what we think ours would be yeah. so yeah i'm sorry that that happened that is it sucked and i and yeah we you know i'm sure as you know and you know when you're dealing with drug addicts and alcoholics you know, I probably know three people a year that that, that die. Not all close friends, but people that you know where you're like, yeah. "Oh my god, I can't I I can't believe that." But it it just reminds you how powerful addiction is. Yeah, even with eating disorders, we have people pass away a lot too and it it's this, it's same type of thing where you know, you do the best you can, you hope for the best, you try to help them, but they have to help themselves. They have to want to change. Name an addiction cuz I can't think of one that can't be deadly workaholism yeah eating disorder drugs and alcohol I, I i'm not even sex addiction you could say oh absolutely uh you see people killing themselves because of uh you know whatever yeah uh, or catching something or who catching knows, something right? um they they burn their life to the ground and then they commit suicide yeah um they have sex with you know they get on craigslist or something and mm-hmm. God knows what they would would find there. But um, so getting back to the um, supporting, supporting the friend, um, anything else you want to touch on, on that, the the friend or the family member 
um, how to do it in a, in a way we, we talked about boundaries. We yeah. Talk- I think the, the last thing I would say just to end it would be just be there for that person. If this isn't like in a, a toxic relationship, emotional vampire type thing, if it's just someone's hurting, you don't know how to help and you feel helpless because you're watching them hurt. Mm-hmm. I think making time for them, like setting aside time on a Saturday and go get coffee with them. Um, just letting know you both look at your phones exactly yeah (laughs) (laughs) i just saw this post it was like dance like no one's watching because everybody's on their phones no one's watching (laughs) 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 but just making time for one another actual time eye to eye contact time (laughs) and you know checking in even if it's just a text like hey how's it going been thinking of you that can mean the world to someone who's in a dark place so okay what was the other topic we wanted to to touch on? Or I guess we did that. I think that we was kinda, it. Yeah, we um, went into. Mm-hmm. Did you want to answer? Did you bring any questions that people have asked you that you wanted to talk about, or was that kind of did we touch on that already? Um, I just brought the survey. I went okay. through your surveys. Good. I didn't do any of mine. I mean, I could, but what do you mean any of yours? My people's questions. I just went through oh. your surveys and okay. brought. I brought three. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, so um, the question is, have you ever been the victim of sexual abuse? And she said, yes, I reported it. When I was 11 years old, my uncle on my father's side offered to watch me while everyone else went out for dinner. I honestly pushed it back to the back of my mind for years, but the pain manifested itself in low self-esteem and signs of depression and anxiety. A few years later, I was date raped by my then boyfriend, but I minimized the incident in classic fashion. I blame myself and convinced myself that I just remembered it wrong. I let my ex-boyfriend back into my life because I believed he could never hurt a fly. He raped me again. This time, however, my mental illness, which had been suppressed for years, finally bubbled over. For the first time, I had a full-blown anxiety and thoughts of suicide. I reported the event, but my private school didn't go forward with any punishments. And they discouraged me from going to the police. I attempted suicide. Oh, wait, I just wanted the whole thing to go away, so I allowed myself to be swept under the rug. Big mistake. A few months later, I attempted suicide and was committed to a mental hospital where I was finally diagnosed and medicated. I still have anxiety and depression, however, and sometimes I'm honestly afraid of what I'll do. I thought that was really, I mean, it, it's heavy. It's, it's a heavy. lot of stuff. And I, I just, I wanted to talk about it, I guess, because I hate reading when they're like, I reported it. I finally, because she'd already been harmed before and she finally reported it and they didn't want to deal with it. It's the it's the worst of the one-two punches. It's it I think it's the knockout punch. Yeah. I mean, they can recover from it, but it's, they're going to have to find a different network, support network. Yeah. And I mean, I get so pissed off with schools that um, don't want to hurt their reputation by saying a woman was raped on their campus because of what it might do to potential people coming in and they might not get the creme de la creme next year because parents are afraid their children are going to get raped and there's no campus where somebody's not no i went to a private christian school and people got raped on that campus and i just i'm i mean i i wish i could tell this person that she's really brave and she's not alone and there are support groups out there for this kind of thing i think what would you recommend for her i mean i'm hoping because she says that she's finally diagnosed and medicated but that was at the mental hospital i'd hope that they gave her some kind of discharge plan because the continuity of care for something like this when someone's in crisis like she tried to kill herself she did not see a way out and i think that if she could stick find a therapist who works with people who've been abused um would be great probably a woman since most of her perpetrators have been male that'd probably be more healing for her um 
And my the best book ever, if any of you out there are struggling with abuse or have been sexually abused in your past, the Courage to Heal workbook is like the Bible for this. Who's that by? Oh, I don't even know. Is that terrible? It's yellow. Mm. I use it all the time. It's, it's, like, <laughs> it's on my shelf, but there's no other. It's just the Courage yeah. to Heal workbook. There's okay. no other. I'm oh, that man. way too. I forget. I feel bad for that yeah. author. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's a great, it's a woman and oh shit. Anyway, but it's a, it's an amazing book. And she talks about not being a victim of abuse, being a survivor and how you, yep. everything from how you overcome it initially to how you go on to have healthy sexual relationships with someone you love. Um, it's amazing. So for this person, I mean, I'm hoping that she's seen someone because meds alone aren't going to, aren't going to, meds don't heal you. No. Meds meds, give you a chance to heal. Exactly. I always tell people, you know, meds lift the cloud long enough that we feel like we can do something about it, but it's not, that's not, it doesn't fix the problem that's going on. We have to work on that ourselves and it takes time. It's going to take our time to heal, but she can. And you know. It's not her fault. None of that was her fault. It That's the worst thing. And everybody always mm-hmm. says, I felt like I brought it on or I so remembered natural. it wrong. Yeah. I actually wasn't. So, Was there more to that? Um, yes. Um, she said, um, the next question, have you ever been physically or emotionally abused? If you're comfortable sharing what happened, I've been emotionally abused. My mother and father are both highly manipulative, and when they divorced, it got worse. My father, like me, has both anxiety and depression, but unlike me, my father has never allowed himself to see therapists or take medications, so she has seen someone. His depression spiraled out of control, and I watched him deteriorate for 10 years until he was a dark cloud. He always played the victim, told me about his money problems, and tried to turn my sister and I against my mother by recounting the end of their marriage when everything was falling apart. My mother is a classic narcissist, so you know how that goes. She, mean, has been, she has been abandoned on every every level. Yes. And the fact that I, I did a video about divorce a few weeks ago because my number one pet peeve is when people talk bad about the other's it's parent. It's the worst. Because they're still your parent. Like, we all know our parents aren't perfect. Nobody, you know, it's not the best ideal scenario, but they're still our parents. We can't get rid of them. They can't. You could try to cut yourself off from them, but that leaves people with a lot of pain and, you know, feeling like there's a hole in their life and to do that to a child already going through a hard time. I just feel like it's, it's a wound up on top. It's of abusive. A wound. It it's is absolutely. It's abusive. completely emotionally abusive. Yeah. Um, and the fact that when parents themselves don't get help and children watch their parents deteriorate, whether it's from anxiety, and depression, alcoholism, it could be any number of things. It, that's really painful. And what hope does that give her? You know, yeah, you know, you, it's it's a bad role model for yeah. for a kid because they're like, well, it must be so getting help must be so either unsuccessful mm-hmm. or scary or whatever that yeah. this person in pain isn't reaching out for it. Yeah, they'd rather just die from it or yeah, something. But she's she's reached out and, and good for her. Yeah, I'm glad she found your your channel. What uh, what else? She said the next question was, if you've been abused, are there positive experiences with the abuser? And does that complicate your feelings about them or what happened? Which is a great question, by the way. Um, And I don't think she answered it quite that way. But she said, my ex-boyfriend who raped me seemed like the most caring person in the world. So I guess that's her positive experience that he was caring at one point to this day. Note, she used the word seemed. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. Abusive people can be so manipulative. Totally. They're the worst. I, um... 
it's kind of part of that, like harm to others, that antisocial personality characteristic of people where they manipulate to feed their own needs mm -hmm. without any care for what that does to somebody. Um, said to this day, our mutual friends have sided with him. So he's very manipulative because in comparison, I seem emotionally unstable. I hate being looked at like I'm crazy. I've been accused more than once of making up my sexual abuse. My father's side of the family said that I was seeking attention and used religion as a weapon and shields against me. I'll pray for you. They'd say, I'll still love you. I always proceeded as silent, but universally understood, even though I shouldn't, it hurt to become the black sheep. My mother has kept me away from them. I almost wish I had never said anything at all. She, she has experienced as full of a plate of abuse and abandonment mm -hmm. from every potential source of support. Thank God she is in therapy. I know. And thank God she found your podcast because that was the, yeah. the little silver lining to it to me. I'm like, but she's here and she's talking yeah. about it. So that, that can be powerful for her. And I think at the end, she even said she felt better after sharing. Is there anything else from her? I mean, she filled out quite a bit. Um, let's see. That you, that you want to read that you feel is. I think pertinent. this was the, the one thing I wanted to talk about. Um, that. Let's see. It says, what are, what are the sexual fantasies that are most powerful to you? How does sharing that make you feel? And she said, sex, all sex. I love sex. I have a lot of it. And it's something I've become very good at, especially passionate sex. It makes me feel alive. Most disturbingly, I want to be destroyed by it. I've eroticized the notion of being kidnapped and used for sex by a stranger. It's ironic that I want to be treated like a piece of meat, even though that's what fucked up my brain. It's, it's not ironic. It's, it's no. textbook. It's a coping skill. Yeah. And it's something that I, um, I recently read an article about the, the trauma myth. And the fact that when we're in training as therapists, they teach us, first of all, people need to talk about every nitty gritty detail of their abuse to heal from it, which is still holds true. But what we thought was that the experience itself would be so traumatizing, but it's actually not in the moment. It's when later, a lot of times it's later, unless it was violent, but most of the time it's later when we're older, maybe we're 10 years old and we realize what happened to us and it can be really painful then. And many people turn to sex as a way to heal like well that was that was how someone showed me love then that's how i'll find love now versus understanding true intimacy without the sexual component that you can you know it it's a it's a very normal response she's not alone that's something that a lot of people struggle with especially if they have the past that yeah. she had yeah we we talk about that a lot on yeah. on the podcast because people think well the fact that I like being degraded sexually means that I must have brought this on in as a, as opposed to the real truth, which is this is you trying to go back and control the thing that was so painful to you where you felt so, so small and so powerless and yeah. so vulnerable, um, which is the state for really beautiful intimacy to happen is how we should be is that all the walls down vulnerable yeah. and and that becomes the most terrifying thing in the world. So how could your sex and, and your romantic relationships not become um, fraught with landmines after that? When yeah. that is the, the scariest thing in the world. So then we, I think, wind up seeking excitement over intimacy and we, and we confuse yeah. uh, the two. And I have some clients who say they want to seek their own control over it. Like, well, now I control it. I choose. And it, you know, it's, 
it's a twisted web that it, it spun and us it, into, you know? And it's probably addictive, and you're going to mm-hmm. need more and more of a payoff to keep getting the same yeah. hit from yeah. it. And it will probably begin to degrade your life. It may be intoxicating at first, but yeah. um, that's that's my thought. Yeah, some it. people say they like it helps them numb out, disconnect. It's like dissociation, kind of like you're doing this act with your body, but not with your mind. Yeah. Yeah. But you can... That for people out there, though, you can heal from it. It's not something that is irreversible. You're not broken. It's not, you know. Not at all. And we begin to let those walls back down around people that are safe and appropriate. You will begin to unnumb. And at first, it will probably be really scary and painful. But then you'll be able to feel the things that healed people mm-hmm. feel, which is intimacy, joy. Yeah. Um, it, it, joy, sublime joy over things that are really small and and beautiful, you know, just seeing a little kid playing with his mom or, you know, a dog in the park or, you know, things that you're just like, wow, life is awesome. Yeah. But if you're numbing yourself with addictions um, or repeating that, that, that trauma, um, it's, you're going to numb yourself. You're going to miss the good stuff too. That was my long way of trying to say that. Mm -hmm. No, but you're right. That's very true. Uh, was there anything else from from her survey? Um, I think that that's it, really. Um, but you know, after writing this, she feels better. I think that's the Good. important thing to remember. Just venting can be so helpful, even if you're just writing an anonymous survey on a jackass's website. Yep, but no, no jackass. <laughs> it's helpful. I, I I enjoy. I love the surveys. I think that's a great tool. It's been so illuminating for me to yeah. understand what people hold inside. Yeah. And what they've been through. I had no idea. And just giving them an outlet for it. Even same on mine. Even mine can be anonymous too, because they can make up any kind of username they want. Um, giving people a place to share is, is great. So they share more than just uh, asking you questions. Oh yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't, because I don't have surveys like this, they don't get into stuff necessarily as much, but sometimes they do. Yeah. depends on what they need. They know what they yeah. need. So. Well, you're free uh, to use these. Uh, on your show if you ever wanted okay. to go through there and you're like I'd say I just ask that you say where you got where it I from got it. totally um, mm-hmm. but yeah um, did you have another survey yes I did let me see what the other one was and you have one from the body shame yes. survey you'd like to talk about yeah it's a female let she... me guess is the word fat gonna be in there <laughs> yes 99.9% and the men too but uh I'd say probably about 85% of the respondents are uh women and it's oh, really? all the word fat is yeah. in almost every one of them. Yeah, it's it's in here a lot. It's a very interesting, but it's a, a female between the ages of 40 and 49 and the first question says what do you dislike about your body and why? And she says I dislike everything about my outer wrapping. I enjoy the term she uses. It's mm-hmm. it, tells a lot about her i'm obese because i discovered early on that the men who sexually abused me were turned off by fat i piled on the pounds like a medieval town building a wall to ward off invaders it worked great except that it turned out to be my defense mechanism so i've never been able to take it away instead i just gain and gain making me hate my body because it looks nothing like i would like myself to be Theoretically, I would like to be a normal, sexual being who is unafraid of her sexuality and strong enough to know how to deal with unwanted advances. But the invisible, sexless blob that I am is safe and comfortable. 
I'm terrified to face the possibility that if I had a fit physique, I would again be noticed and targeted, or the sad possibility possibility that despite the nice figure, no one would want me anyway because I'm too fucked up, I'm too weird, or too socially awkward from years of not talking to anyone. I like my intellect, though it doesn't bring me happiness either. I like that my organs function well and my body is without internal sickness, unless you count mental illness, in which case I'm defective. Mm, it breaks my heart. Yeah, and it, I mean... It's like we talked about earlier about how people who've been sexually abused can use weight as a way to control the abuse because she thought that fat wouldn't be sexy, so they leave her alone. And even as a a 40 to 49-year-old, she still fears that if she loses the weight, she won't know what to do with the advances if she gets any. And then the fear that if she doesn't, she still won't get any advances. And the... She sees herself as powerless, as if yeah. somebody made an advance, she wouldn't be able to find the words or the strength or the willingness to say, hey, back off. Yeah, exactly. And it it just sounds to me like she could really benefit from a group, talking in a group, learning to express herself, be heard. I, my guess would be that as a child, she never really felt heard or understood or maybe even just cared for in a real authentic way. I mean, that's why I love that I love that you do the group therapy too. I think groups can be really healing. So healing. Because you hear other people's stories and even though they're not the same as yours, they're they're the but same. The feelings are the same. <laughs> exactly. And when they respond to yours and they mirror you and mm-hmm. you feel felt and you see that look in their eyes where yeah. you know they feel you, it's it's transformative. It is and so healing for people and I think um, part of, you know, it's part of the eating disorder thing with this is like the, the fear of what it would mean if we no longer use it anymore. Almost like alcoholics sometimes will say, well, no one will like me if I'm not fun. And I'm not fun if I don't drink. I won't be able to relax. Exactly. I'll be, I'll be, um, exposed. Yeah. And what would that feel like? You know, how, what could that mean? What could happen to me? How could I be wounded? All those... The fear of the unknown is, I think, one of our greatest fears. Yeah, it's debilitating. We'll stay frozen forever. We will take the sick comfortable, the sick known, rather than the potentially joyous, uh, unexplored. Mm -hmm. Because we're like, well, other people experience joy. Yeah. It's going to be a shit show for me. Exactly. Because that's what my life is supposed to be. Because look at the track record. Yeah. Clearly God or the universe hates me or there is something about me that just attracts uh trauma and negativity yeah especially when sexual abuse happens from more than one person to someone how can the world not be scary i mean i have so many followers are like yeah i was sexually abused as a child then i was raped at 16 by somebody else and then I'm, i'm thinking how much more you know can someone take it be it it's just overwhelming and so this really touched me because of the fact that she talks about how she's safe and comfortable with the way that she is because she it's it's a comfortable norm she knows what it is she knows what to expect and i guess my challenge to people who are struggling with this would be to set some little mini goals of things that you'd like to challenge yourself with even if it's just i'm gonna you know i don't know what what her struggles are exactly but sometimes just getting people to go walk to the coffee shop and say hi to someone mm-hmm. to be just go to a busy coffee shop maybe in the first 10 times. Don't even say anything to anyone. Exactly. Just get comfortable with mm-hmm. the flow around there. Who knows? Maybe somebody will say something to you. Uh-huh. It's true. And and even just sometimes it, putting yourself in social situations, whether or not you interact, 
can can really help, you know, move you out of the safe, comfortable. Because even though she says it's safe and comfortable, it doesn't sound like she's very happy about it. So her life sounds small and yeah. and kind of um, sad. Yeah. And I bet she feels lonely a lot. Um, the thing about humans and being a human in general is we all seek comfort from other people. We need some kind of interaction. The good people are out there. They're yeah, everywhere. They're exactly. everywhere. Yeah. So I think, yeah, getting out a little bit challenge, even if you just walk out to get your meal in the daytime instead mm-hmm. of the night, maybe, or any little step to bring you out a little bit. Um, and then think about how it felt. You know, how to, how to go. <laughs> and would, would it be safe to say to her for now, don't worry about the weight. Don't deal with any of that. Just yeah. get out and mingle. Yeah. I mean, I always tell people we're not going to worry. I mean, cause she says she's healthy. I always have them go yeah. to their, obviously if anybody out there has a similar situation, go to your primary care doctor, get checked out first. Um, but as long as you're in okay health, everything's fine. Don't worry about the weight because it's not about the weight. It's not about the food. It's about how the food makes you feel and, you know, more about the emotional experience you've had and how you've used that as a way to cope. Mm-hmm. So we're going to try to fill it with new coping skills secretly by getting you out and getting you to talk to people. It's it's kind of like a we have to work in new ways and mm-hmm. see how they go. Outside of, outside of your intellect, Exactly. You know, I see that with a lot of people, r- really, really smart intellectual people. It can be their enemy when they're trying to heal because it's a comfortable place to go to because they can they can intellectualize it. And you exactly. don't have to feel if you're intellectualizing. Yep. And it's almost, I have a, a client who I'm not seeing anymore, but I saw her for years and she would hide. We called it, you're hiding in your intellect because she would rationalize why this would work or wouldn't work or I know I'm doing this because da, da, da. and if I really wanted to get better I could but I just the the probability that I would relapse would be da, da, this much and you know I, we all know that we can know things but to feel it is so much more powerful yeah that's right intellectualizing is not processing no crying where snot is running down your (laughs) face where you're a little embarrassed and that person's like it's okay i'm here for you that is the stuff that helps us change that's the work that's the work and it feels awesome the lightness on the other side of a good snotty cry oh totally is uh it's my favorite is the laugh after a good snotty cry that that is like one of my favorite combinations in the world. It's the opposite of the, I was traumatized and I went to somebody uh, and they rejected me. Yeah. It's the opposite one-two punch. It's the, it is. It's the fantastic one-two punch. It's that cathartic, that release that we all need, you know, kind of feel like you shook it all off and you feel mm-hmm. lighter somehow. Yeah. And yeah. it comes in layers. That's been my experience is it, it comes up in layers, um, but we grow and feel better uh all the time don't don't expect it to happen in one session yeah um it's and yeah, for some of us it might be a lifelong thing where there's just constant little tiny um layers coming up where you get better and better and better and better but it's forward yes that's exactly the important thing. i always tell people it's a process it's not perfection you're going to just work your way through your own layers as it comes up and as you process it and you know 
And it's important to be compassionate with yourself when you're moving backwards because yeah. we do go backwards. I was joking the other day in my support group that uh, my recovery hasn't always been forward. A lot of times I'm like a bad cab driver spiraling my way <laughs> into the airport. You know, I'm going to go back home and pick up some more luggage. You know? <laughs> yeah. But you got to go easy. You got to yeah. go easy on yourself because at least you're in the car and you're you're moving. You're moving. Exactly. And you're trying. That's the, you're trying. That's the hardest part. Seeking is one of the healthiest energy ways that you can change your life. Just the act of seeking. Yeah. Even if you don't find what you thought you were looking for, just the act of going to look for it makes you a better, stronger person. It does. Yeah. It's really powerful. And it reconfirms that you do have power yeah. in your life. So we are in control of our destiny to some extent, To right? some extent, yeah. Yeah. But we can make of what's, you know what's happened to us and what's come we can make our best out of it and we can control our reaction to the things that happen that we don't have any control over that's that to me is mostly what um what i've learned in therapy and support groups is oh that's really all i have control over is how Mm -hmm. i react to the things i don't have control over but that's a lot it is a lot but it feels like little at first when you realize oh you mean i can't but they should. I can't change this person. Uh huh. I remember my therapist when I first started therapy. She'd be like, "Katie, you're shitting all over all of this. Just should, should, should. People shouldn't do anything you tell them to do. What do you need to do?" <laughs> mm. I'm like, ah. And I would catch myself every time. I'd be like, "Well, they should have just, you know, like it's a bad word." And it, it's been really. It's healing. fantasy. It is because we can hope and hope and hope, but all we can really do is move forward ourselves and hope is okay as long as you're moving forward yeah exactly but when you're standing still and waiting for hope to come pick you up and drive you there uh (laughs) good luck exactly (laughs) good luck um anything else no that was the that was the last of it okay the other one was very similar to the first so okay well thank you so much katie and people can find your uh youtube channel if they just uh search katie morton yep K-A-T-I-M-O-R-T-O-N. Yep. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for having me. Definitely looking forward to having Katie uh, come back on the on the show, and uh, hopefully I'll talk a little less. I was pretty annoyed at myself as I was editing that together. I was like, Jesus Christ, let her fucking talk. Um, before we take it out with some surveys, want to remind you guys that there are a couple of different ways to support the show. If you feel so inclined, you can support us financially by going to the website mentalpod.com and making a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, a recurring monthly donation for as little as five bucks a month. And uh, it means the world to me and helps keep the podcast going. So um, we definitely appreciate that. You can also support us by uh, shopping at Amazon and entering through the search portal on our right-hand side. Make sure that your pop-up blocker isn't uh, active because I think it, it with some browsers, it might not show up if you're, uh, you have your pop-up blocker. Um, that sounded dirty, didn't it? Mm. Make sure to rub your... <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. Um, you can also support us non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice about us, giving us a good rating that boosts our, uh, our rankings. And then we get more new listeners because they discover it on iTunes. Lately, we haven't been showing up on the, uh, the ranking of the top 200 podcasts on, uh, iTunes. And it might be because we haven't had, uh, any ratings in a while. So if you would do that, that would be, if you go to iTunes when this is done 
and uh, give us a good rating. That that might help get us back on that page because that does get new listeners coming our uh, our way. Um, there's something else I wanted to share. Oh my god, I went into my junk folder today, and I was like, let me just see if by some weird circumstance, because um, I know occasionally you guys will send me emails and for some reason they get sent to the spam folder and there were like a hundred fucking emails in there that had been spent sent to spam so i am so sorry for if you guys have sent me some heartfelt email and never heard anything back um i apologize sometimes they they do that especially if you have included a link in your email to me um i think google mail uh or Gmail, as we call it, in the business, uh, thinks that that's spam. So, um, yeah, just giving you a heads up on that. Let's get to some surveys. This is, this is from Struggle in a Sentence, and this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Kay. And about his depression, he writes, I'm so fucking bored all the time. At home, I'm a prisoner. When I'm out, I just want to go back. Oh my God, do I relate to that one. This is filled out by Wallace. And uh, he writes uh, a snapshot from his life. He writes, I met with my boyfriend after two weeks of him not speaking to me. I had intended to break up with him, but I couldn't even bring myself to say that he was being a jerk to me. I compulsively told him how much I loved him in the vain hope that he would change. After that meeting, he didn't speak to me again until three months later when he dumped me via text message. This is filled out by Lucy, who uh, writes, I have always felt like there is a small girl inside of me who is trying to kill me. That That is deep, that one. Um, and uh, Kicknick writes about her anxiety, like every doorway of my life has a bucket of pig blood hanging over it. And about her ADHD, she writes, the organizational coach in my head declares, it's not ADHD, you're just lazy and not really that smart. No offense. I like how her, the mean voice in her head is kind of passive aggressive. No offense. But here's the worst possible things I can say to you. <laughs> Even the mean voice in her head is manipulative. That's fantastic. Uh, this is from the Shame and Secret survey, and this is filled out by Evie May. I believe we've read uh, from Evie May before. And... Um, we just have, I guess we lost a page of hers. Um, I don't know where the other page is. So we'll just read what we have of of this. She is uh, 20 straight, raised in a stable and safe environment. Um, oh, she's never been sexually abused. Uh, didn't answer whether or not she's been um, physically or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. While I would never kill myself, I do have a detailed suicide fantasy. I check into a hotel room for two weeks, a really nice one with a big, warm, cozy bed and a lovely, clean bathroom. Then I would just buy bags and bags of delicious, indulgent food and champagne and spend my days binging, purging, drinking, taking long baths, and watching comedies and documentaries in bed. I'd carry on doing this until my money ran out. Wouldn't take too long. Then I'd overdose. This might be too dark even for your podcast. The thing is, I don't want to die, and I still believe the world is beautiful and full of hope. But on rough days, I kind of enjoy dwelling on my suicide fantasy. Maybe one day, when I'm well again, I'll do the rest of it. 
without the purging or pills, just the hot baths and films bit. Right now, I feel like I could sleep for 48 straight hours. For 48 hours straight. Easy. Uh, by the way, I occasionally get emails from people who say, could you give triggering warnings You know, on, on this and that? It, this podcast would be four hours long if I if I gave a trigger warning for, you know, I try to omit things if I feel like they're not pertinent, if they might be a little uh, a little too graphic, but um, you just got to trust me that I go with my gut on, on that. I, I am, I do try to be cognizant of that, but I can't, I can't please everyone um, with this. And I'm sorry for those of you that, that do get, uh, that do get triggered. Uh, darkest secrets. There's a deep scar on my leg that everyone thinks is from an accident. No one in the world knows that I actually deliberately slashed myself with a razor blade one night because I hadn't slept for days and my mind wouldn't stop racing. I cried like a baby at the hospital, not because it hurt, but because the nurse was so kind to me and it felt so lovely to be looked after. I don't think she believed my accident story, but she didn't say anything. Can I just give some fucking love to healthcare providers that that do it with soul? You are so fucking important. You 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 are doing the Lord's work. You really are. It it whenever I've been in a situation, you know, like getting a, an operation or something and I'm and I'm nervous ahead of time, um most of the time I'm not. Most of the time I'm like, just give me that fucking drug that makes me feel good. But just having somebody that makes eye contact with you and doesn't seem rushed and treats you like a human being, it it it's huge. It's huge. So um, anyway, getting back to Evie May, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. And normally I fantasize about being choked, slapped, or scratched. But tonight I'm feeling vulnerable and I'd rather just have a hug. Thanks. Have you shared these things with others? I wish I could tell someone I'm suffering, but I'm worried my issues are too trivial. Oh, they are not. They are not. Nobody's issues are too trivial. Um, how do you feel after writing these things down? Better, actually. I love your podcast because it reminds me that the world isn't full of happy people and that I'm not the awkward anomaly. I don't feel ashamed anymore. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, I forgot which is the pile I'm picking from. Oh, this is it. This is uh, this is a dark, awfulsome moment. We got some dark, awfulsome moments in uh, in tonight's stack. Uh, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself "He Died on My Time," and she writes, "My boyfriend committed suicide about five months ago by a gunshot wound to the head. It's been the most intense struggle of my life just to survive and not kill myself too since then." My dad lives two hours away and visits when he can. We usually go downtown, eat, read, and drink beer. As you can imagine, most of our conversations have been pretty heavy and sad. On his last visit, he was talking to me about issues he was having with his girlfriend. Like usual, I was trying to gingerly give him my opinion. Suddenly, I stopped as if hit as it hit me how ridiculous it was that I was giving my dad relationship advice. My boyfriend killed himself. Who am I to give fucking advice? I said this with a hint of humor in my voice, and he burst out laughing hard. So I laughed too. A big laugh. It's all so ridiculous and hard, this life. Thank you for sharing that. And I personally don't believe that if, if your partner kills themselves, that that's any reflection of you at all. 
Uh, let's see. This is this is a shame and secret survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Leech Boy, and he is gay. He's in his twenties, and he was raised in a pretty dis- dysfunctional environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was 14, I played up the Lolita character quite a bit, and there was a much older man that my mother was friends with, and I used used him to buy me things and show me the love that my parents never gave me. Our relationship, which was a weird one to say the least, uh, he would uh, have me call him daddy, and I was his baby doll. Yeah, I'd say that's abuse. Um, eventually, it turned sexual. Me being the hormonal teenager, I was gl- I gladly took the attention. My mother never found out, and eventually we both realized that it had to stop, but we kept in contact well into my early 20s. Uh, He says he's been emotionally abused. Uh, My mother would leave me alone with all of my sisters as early as when I was 10, and they were barely toddlers and babies. She had to work three jobs and was emotionally distant, telling me that I always had to do better and that I was going to end up just like her if I didn't do better. She made me feel inferior, and to this day, whenever I want to do something for myself, I feel like the most selfish human being in the world. Any positive experiences with your abusers? I love my mother, but she still makes no attempt to contact me or be in my life in any way, and when she is in my life, she tells me how I can improve and how selfish I'm being. I'm still unsure how to feel about what happened to me and how I'm supposed to feel. There is no supposed to feel. There's just how you feel and you should know that people who have experienced sexual trauma which you have um, experience numbness and that's my two cents which is actually due to inflation now three cents that joke if that's not a hundred years old I don't I if nobody's ever done that joke I will be amazed uh, darkest thoughts I still think about when I was 14 and the things that me and the older man did and I masturbate to them Um, and those things get me off better than any boyfriend I've ever had. That's another thing that's textbook and people blame themselves for is because they're like, well, if that gets me off, that means I wanted it. No, uh, I think Katie and I talked about that on the, uh, the podcast. Darkest secrets. In high school, I would let closeted gay boys use me to get their sexual frustration out. It was the most humiliating thing I've ever done, but it was the only way I could get the physical attention I needed. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being with a much older man, that makes me feel like I'm sick for wanting to relieve, relive the relationship I had when I was a teenager. Well, you know my thoughts on that. Um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Why did you let us, in quotation marks, go on for so long when you knew I would never be what you would need? What, if anything, do you wish for? A time machine and a year off from work. Have you shared these things with others? I shared them with... Uh, with my ex-boyfriend once. He told me that the older man brainwashed me and that I was definitely abused and that I should seek mental help. After I explained to him that I felt love towards the older man and shared about my sexual fantasies, he left me in a rage. Well, the first part of what your ex-boyfriend did is beautiful and loving and the last part is fucked. Um, So I want to tell your ex to go half fuck himself, which you got to be careful with because you can pull your lower back half fucking yourself. Uh, How do you feel after writing these things down? It feels like I've pulled something out of my teeth. That satisfying freedom that you forgot existed because you were so used to having that little piece of meat poking your tongue. 
Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? It, if it was a positive experience and you have no regrets, how wrong can it be? Well, I'd like to just stress that your body can experience one thing and your soul can experience something completely different. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Bipolar Sunflower. And she writes, uh, I was 13 years old in a psychiatric ward. Uh, the the tenses in her thing it kind of fluctuate, so I'm kind of, to keep it consistent, I'm kind of editing on the fly here. I was 13 years old and in a psychiatric ward for the first time. I had never wanted to die more than I did then. I felt alienated, bullied at school, confused about my identity. They put me in the children's ward for the first night because there was no room in the teenage girl wing. There was lasagna on the floor of my room and a little boy had dragged his bed out into the hall and was screaming bloody murder. I cried all day, begging for the nurses to let me go home that this was all a mistake. The nurse said something like, God will make it all better. And when I told her I don't believe in God, she tried to indoctrinate me right there in the hallway as I'm crying and wailing, begging to go home. The girls on the floor were terrifying. Most of them were in for anger-related issues, and within an hour of arriving at the ward, a fight breaks out, and they usher us into our rooms as large men break up the fight, and they take the girl to sedate her. Is this what a psych ward is like? It felt more like a prison, with puke yellow walls covered in drawings of obscenities and bars blocking the windows. I didn't want to leave my room once I got a hold of some books, but they all told me that if I didn't go to the common room, they wouldn't let me go home. It doesn't take long before a girl is throwing furniture in the common room and another girl lunges it at her, rips off her weave, and then flushes it down the toilet, flooding the hallway. I didn't have group therapy or individual therapy at all during my stay, and I appreciated the peace of the outside world so much more. And then I had an allergic reaction to my medication and broke out in a hideous rash all over my face and body. Oh, and it was Christmas. <laughs> that is Hall of Fame fucking awfulsome. Thank you for sharing that bipolar sunflower. This is a shame and secret survey, and this is filled out by um, a woman who calls herself activist antagonist, and she is straight in her 20s. Uh, actually, she writes straight uh, by curious in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Um, she writes, I finally opened up about getting raped at 17 um, when I was age 23 uh, over a month ago. In high school, I went to my best friend's party and was ready to get shit-faced since it was the summer before college. After a few too many drinks, I began crying to a new guy friend, one that my best friend hosting the party had liked. While consoling me, he proposed the idea of going into her dad's office for privacy since the house was packed with people. Naive as ever and drunkenly desperate, I obliged. In that office, I was not beaten or threatened, but was penetrated without consent. It was humiliating. I wish I screamed and fought and choked the guy, but I was afraid, afraid of what was happening, afraid my best friend would get into big trouble and afraid my own body, afraid of my own body being intruded. My friend found out we had been alone together and began screaming at me. I couldn't tell her then, but now she knows and her apology has been accepted. I never had the opportunity until opening up to my therapist about being raped to really process how that event contributed to the eating disorder I developed at age 20 and still struggle with today. 
After it happened, I tailspun into promiscuity uh, through most of my college career, before and during my issues with food. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and I now know that my body, my body was, never was, and never will be the problem. Uh, my methods of coping with my body through starvation, binging, purging, cutting, drinking, drug abuse, and promiscuity were my way of quote protecting my body. If the destruction of my body was at my own hands, then I had control. By drowning out emotion through these crimes against my body, I felt powerful. It is so profound. It is so profound. Any positive experiences with your abusers? Though I never reported it, I feel at peace with my rapist in a strange but empowering way. He is a piece of shit. I am in the process of healing. He has done the same thing to other girls, but I am only responsible for my own health and happiness. I struggle, but he will always know what he has done and live with it. It's on him. I was naive and young and drunk and stupid. He was a predator. What are your darkest thoughts? How wonderful it would be to die in an accident. I would escape the, quote, selfish title given to those who kill themselves. I wouldn't die by my own hands or the hands of my eating disorder. I feel as though that is the only way an untimely death would be appropriate. I don't want to die, but there are days when living is all too much to cope with. Darkest secrets. I have fucked friends, boyfriends, ex-boyfriends, love interests, etc. I have cheated in the past, not to hurt lovers, but to hurt myself. I have done more abuse to my body than anyone else ever did in an attempt to gain control of my life. Her survey is so profound. So profound for, for somebody who's still only in their 20s. Amazing. She is clearly done a lot of work um sexual fantasy is most powerful to you the most ironic thing is my fantasies involving me being completely vulnerable i fantasize about getting pulled over in my car by police and fucking them to get out of a ticket i dream about being in a situation similar to the movie secretary with maggie gyllenhaal i want to be simultaneously abused slash desired slash used for pleasure I feel okay sharing this because I am lucky enough to have a stable relationship and sex life now. I can ask to be dominated with the freedom of stopping behavior that doesn't sit well with me. I am loved so, so deeply. I am completely in love. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my boyfriend that I am afraid and grateful for our relationship. I'm afraid that a day will come where he will no longer love me the way he does now. I'm afraid that I will be wrong about him and he will hurt me, but I am constantly challenging those thoughts. I want him to know he is perfect in all that he is. I want him to know that my body is perfect against his and he makes me feel beautiful in so many ways. I want him to know that my ultimate goal in recovery is to love myself as much as he loves me. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for freedom. I want to embrace my strengths and become a force to be reckoned with. I would say you already are a force to be reckoned with. Um, have you shared these things with others? Some things, but not all. In support groups and among other girls with eating disorders slash addiction, I find that the other women are the only people in the universe who truly understand the power of self-abuse self-abusive mental illness. I hold the women I've met through therapy to the highest regard because they have been warriors. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel good because it's anonymous. I never told my parents about being raped. I think it would destroy them. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Though I do not consider myself by any means recovered, self-care has become more of a priority for me. If you feel the same way as I do, do yourself small favors. Make a hair mask. I don't even know what the fuck that is. 
Um, buy a great pair of shoes, take a long bath, do your nails, take a nap, do anything that makes your body feel good without any kind of damage. Love your body back. It loves you enough to give your soul a means of meeting other souls. Uh, that is just one of the most beautiful surveys I've ever read. That is, that is, that is like this entire show in a single survey. That is, I hope to meet her someday and shake her hand. I won't hug her, though. I think she's a little creepy. Right now, there's somebody that thinks I was serious. Why can't I just let that joke fucking lay there? Because there's one person oh, that is so codependent of me that I have to worry about that one person that's going to think I'm mean. Ugh. Here's a happy moment. This is filled out by... She, I think this is a diff, the same person but a different name um, from a previous survey. She writes, hopefully I didn't kill him with my craziness. She writes, in the months since my boyfriend completed suicide, each day has been bleak as fuck. It's been the worst time of my life, but one evening I felt this lightness. I turned on some cheesy 90s dance music and danced on my wooden floor. I felt happy somehow. I felt his presence. Half an hour later, I was back to grieving, but I remember the hope I felt in this moment that perhaps I can heal. Thank you for sharing that. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself the strong one, and she is straight. She's in her 30s, and she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. She writes, I never really knew how to phrase it. I think I'll have an easier time putting it into words since listening to your story and the listener stories. I felt like my mom devoured me with her eyes. I always felt like she wanted to get close to me physically, and I wanted to push her away. One time I remember her commenting on my having developed a woman's hips. I think she was kneeling in front of me, maybe checking the fit of an item of clothing she was altering. She would drop hints about being a lesbian sometimes. She tells me I'm beautiful. It's hard to put into words. I feel like it was a thousand little things. I love her. We're still close, but I don't want to hug her. Um, she says that she's been emotionally abused. My mom was very depressed all through my childhood. She thought of me as, quote, stronger than her from a young age. She told me that us kids were her only reason for living. That is one of the most abusive things that you can say to kids. That is, I'm sure the parent thinks that's a compliment, but that is an anvil of fucking pressure on that kid's back. Um, you might as well say, hey, don't ever come to me with anything that might upset me. That You might as well say that because that's how the kid's going to interpret it. Uh, she told me about being abused and neglected by her mom. My mom was very anxious about social situations and would get very grumpy before seeing friends or family. I felt very protective of her uh, from my earliest memory. I knew that if I went to her in pain, it would make her feel worse. And I knew in a kind of matter-of-fact way from the age of whatever your first memory is, three, four, five, I knew that it would make my situation worse if I went to her. So I became, quote, the strong one. She also got terrible cluster headaches, a very severe type of migraine. So I can remember her pacing from the pain of the headache or the anxiety about going to work the next day. My dad was very passive, and I felt like the house was burning down and no one was doing anything, so I had a sense of quiet panic. It was on me. 
My brother was younger and she didn't tell him anything and he was oblivious. I was the only one aware of the woman in severe pain. She wouldn't help herself. I eventually got her to go on antidepressants. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Uh, I love her deeply. My feelings are very complicated. She is emotionally manipulative and I've had to call her on her shit many, many times. Darkest thoughts. Uh, I guess just the belief that I am either damaged or genetically predestined to not be able to enjoy life. Darkest secrets. I once worked for a boiler room con operation where we manipulated rich people into giving us money for stocks that we, the company, secretly owned. Glen Gary, Glen Ross type of thing. It was very fun and I was pretty good at it. I don't really feel shame about this, but it was fraud and theft, so I try not to tell anyone. Um, have you shared these things with others? Uh, oh, uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you being dominated. Uh, have you shared these things with others? My guy is too shy for this. Our sex life is almost non-existent. This is the most unhealthy part of my life right now. I've tried pushing the issue, dragging us to counseling, talking about it over and over. I don't know what else to do. And after so long without sexual intimacy, I fear I feel overwhelming shyness too. I'm disconnected from sex. It's so sad, actually. How do you feel after writing these things down? Nervous, someone will peek over my shoulder, but calm. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Never give up. Never, never, never. Thank you for sharing that. This is a happy moment filled out by um, Plumeria. And she writes, When I was about 12, I was doing homework in the front room while my dad was watching a political debate on TV. The details of the topic are fuzzy because I had zero interest in politics. However, something was said, and he turned the volume on mute for a minute, and he turned to me and said, I want you to know something. I don't care if your boyfriend is black, green, or purple. If you love him and he treats you right, I will love him too. Then he turns the volume back on, and I was able to process what happened. After the program, I asked him why he said that, and he said, I always knew as a young kid that if I brought home a black girl, that I would no longer be a part of the family. I just needed to say it out loud so you are very clear that it doesn't matter to me or your mother what color he is, but who he is to you. That conversation has been burned into my brain as a beautiful example of unconditional love. I am so lucky to have the parents that I have. Thank you, Plumeria. That's beautiful. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Loser Boy. He's straight in his 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, at age 12, I was forced to orally pleasure a friend that was a year younger than I. Having to live that shame of not only being abused twice, but by someone younger than me, frightens me and makes me feel uh, all that more alone. Uh, I read quite a few of these of people who were abused by somebody who is younger uh, than them, and it can and does happen. Um, he's been emotionally abused, uh, being told by my older siblings that I'll never be good enough to do anything. I'll always be a freak that will need their help till I die. Darkest thoughts. I've never told anyone this. I hate being married, being in yet another controlling relationship. I want out. But she herself had has depression, and if I leave and she dies, I will be forever tortured. So I stay in a loveless marriage for the sake of her and not myself. Um, 
Darkest secrets, I sometimes steal her pain meds. Having her around for that is good right now. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I love porn. I am not a fan of sex all that much. I remember the first time having sex at age 21. I thought, this is it while coming. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want a divorce. What, if anything, do you wish for? To have a studio apartment with my dog and cat. I want to be alone and to be happy. Um, have you shared these things with others? Just the abuse with my wife and therapist. Um, I wonder if you're sharing about how you feel about your wife with your therapist. Um, I would think a good therapist would really um, have some good advice for you on, on how to deal with this. And uh, I don't know. How do you feel after writing these things down? Pretty relieved, but paranoid that my wife can read these things. I think a good question to ask yourself is, is your wife doing everything she can to treat her depression? Because if she's not, that if she's not making a valid attempt to treat her depression, to me, that's a deal breaker in a relationship. Um, anyway. Anything you'd like to share with sh someone who shares your thoughts or feelings? Don't be stuck. If you're unhappy, then get happy. Find help. Do what you need to be happy. As long as you don't hurt yourself and others, then it's fine to do. Now I just need to take my own advice. Yeah, your wife's depression is not... Um, that, that should never, in my opinion, be a reason to um, overlook toxicity in a relationship and it sounds like uh, there's toxicity I want to use that word one more time toxicity this is a three in a row that we're going to do um, filled out by one person actually we're going to end boom 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 with these three from a listener who calls herself Betty Spaghetti and this is her struggle in a sentence about her anxiety. She writes, The pit of my stomach opens up, my skin crawls, my muscles tighten, and I forget to breathe. Uh, about her stage four endometriosis, she writes, It has destroyed my sex life and de debilitated me every month since I was 11. Even after multiple surgeries and medications, I'm still in pain. About her PTSD, the world dims and I become sucked back into my head, floating, listening, and acting in the real world, but reliving the traumas all the while, silently an ocean away from humanity. About being a sex crime victim, I don't think there is any guilt more horrendous than your body responding to sexual abuse. It is as if you wanted and enjoyed it, but really it just robs you of, of enjoyment from sex in the future snapshot from her life. Every time I see someone who looks like my abuser, rage wells up in my body. I become a rhinoceros and a rolling rock ready to strike anything in my path. When that feeling wears off, I'm left with all of the memories of what I lived through. They follow me for days, butting into conversations, playing as I listen to a lecture or do my homework, trying to trick me into running or crying or suicide. I now know that I have to bear them for three days and they will go away until the next time. It gets easier, but it's a slow process. I'm in year seven. I hope by year 10, I don't have these episodes of PTSD anymore. Sending you some serious, serious love, Betty Spaghetti. Um, and this is a, let's see. This is a what has helped you. And 
issues and struggles. She writes, depression where I feel like nothing I do makes a difference. No one can understand what I'm trying to say. And I can't feel, I can't love or feel loved. And hypomania where I will say and do the damnedest things. Cheat on long-term significant others and spend every cent I have on dumb shit. Like Halloween decorations or monogrammed silverware. When the hypos are over, the depression and guilt comes in like a tidal wave of uh, furry Tidal wave, I think she meant uh, fury. And suicide uh, sounds as serene as a warm bath. What has dealt, uh, helped you deal with them? She writes, I found a support group where they told me about Fountain House, a working community for people with mental illnesses. I started volunteering there and found, quote, my people who are strong, resilient, and beautiful. Every day I want to do good by them. Through the help of the other members and staff, uh, they got me from homelessness and suicidally to thriving and attending college. One of the most important things is that I listen to my thoughts and don't get angry at myself for them anymore. I understand they're always going to be there. I take medication, eat right, sleep right, keep the right company, and have been sober for six years. And then uh, her happy moment, she's just got a couple of little ones that I wanted to read. She writes, sharing an ice cream cone with the smartest, sweetest dog my family ever had. The smell of rain in a forest on a hot summer day. The day I realized I could stay in this world instead of being sucked back into the sensory memories of abuse and knowing that it was my hard work, determination, and resilience that brought me to that point. And then finally, the days I got the the day I got the keys to my apartment after having been homeless. You are a fucking badass, Betty Spaghetti. You are a fucking badass. Man, I love when the human spirit is just indomitable. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, thank you guys for uh, for uh, being you, supporting the show doing what you do and um hanging with me when i when i have these these patches i know i worry about it way more than i should but i get so anxious sometimes i'm so afraid sometimes that i'm doing i'm doing something that's alienating me from you and that i'm going to be abandoned and that everybody's going to hate the show. And I know it's crazy. I know it's crazy. I know none of you judge me as hard as I judge myself. And if you do, go fuck yourself. But it, I, I have to talk about it. Otherwise, it eats me alive. And um, anyway, thank you for bearing with me. And um, I hope if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, you know that you're not alone and that there's there's help and there's hope if you're just willing to get out of your comfort zone. And um, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.